Hey everyone, I apologize for not uh, having a podcast in, in a few weeks now, but things have been just incredibly busy here, as I'm sure it has been for everyone. One of the reasons it's been so busy is because uh, four years ago I got involved in a project called The Fuller Story. Uh, in my uh, hometown of Franklin, Tennessee, there's a Confederate monument uh, in the middle of the downtown square, and uh, three pastors, three good friends of mine, and a historian, actually two pastors, Myself, uh, Chris Williamson of Strong Tower Bible Church, and Hewitt Sawyers of West Harpeth Primitive Baptist, and then a historian by the name of Eric Jacobson, we got together to try to uh, come up with a way to contextualize uh, the monument and add to the story and really look at um, the Civil War through the eyes of the African American. As a result of that, we put up five markers around downtown uh, Franklin um, two years ago that, that gave elements of the story uh, where the monu- where the Confederate monument actually stands was an old courthouse. Beside the courthouse was a market house where men, women, and children were sold like cattle along with cattle. So there's a marker about that. There's a marker about um, some things that happened during Reconstruction, some positive things, some uh, key African-American families in our city. There's five markers total, and then there's one marker that's to the United States Colored Troop uh, soldiers. Think of the movie Glory, and that's what we're talking about. Well, this past Saturday, October 23rd, after four years, we unveiled a statue to the United States Colored Troops. It's a statue of a soldier. He's got his foot on a stump and he's holding a rifle. Uh, The USCT guys were part of the United States Army and Navy. They fought for their freedom and for our freedom as well, and they have not been recognized. There are less than 10 of these type of statues in the whole country. There are over 700 statues to the Confederacy less than 10 to the United States Color Troop, and we're the only city in the United States that has a statue of a United States Color Troop soldier in our downtown. So last Saturday was a historic event. And so what I'm going to do, this is a two-part podcast, and they're both very long, is there were two main events leading up to Saturday. Um, One was on Thursday night, which would have been, uh, I think, what is that, the 21st of October? where myself, uh, the other gentleman, and the sculptor, Joe Frank Howard, had a panel where people asked us questions, and we got to tell our experience with the Fuller story. And uh, that was almost two hours long. And then on Saturday, our city gathered around um, in the square, tons of people. I don't even want to guess how many. And we had an unveiling ceremony where we all got to speak, uh, plus some other people. And there's some music, and it is about an hour and a half long. And so this is part one. This is the panel discussion of myself, Pastor Chris Williamson, Pastor Hewitt Sawyers, historian Eric Jacobson, and then the sculptor uh, John uh, or Joe Howard. And uh, Brooke Wasner, a uh, reporter from our local newspaper, is asking the questions. So I hope you enjoy. have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5, and I want to read verse 24, where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev, he is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin.
Let's begin the conversation. Tonight, this is our opportunity to meet the fuller story, and I'm going to introduce to you some of our visitors. First, our moderator, who is one of the writers for the Williamson Herald, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Brooke Wanzer. Tonight, we have the sculptor all the way from his home state with some of his family. He is the gift of hands that did sculpt March for the Freedom. His name is Mr. Joe Howard. Now, the four gentlemen who are responsible for having us out for this week. First, the pastor of West Harpeth Primitive Baptist Church, none other than Elder Hewitt Sawyers. Next coming to the stage is the CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust, none other than our friend, my homie, my brother, Mr. Eric Jacobson. Next, we have the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church, the leader of Franklin Community Development, the leader of everything that we know in Franklin, Tennessee, my pastor, Dr. Kevin Riggs. Last but not least, my wife's pastor, my friend, my homie, the senior pastor of Strong Tower Bible Church, Dr. Chris Williamson. Ladies and gentlemen, Brooke Wanzer, Mr. Joe Howard, Elder Hewitt Sawyers, Dr. Chris Williamson, Dr. Kevin Riggs, and Eric Jacobson, better known as the Fuller Story. Thank you for that, Walter. Um, so I'm Brooke Wanzer. I've lived in Franklin for the last four years. Um, I live in the Hard Bargain neighborhood, if you're familiar with that. It is one of the very oldest black neighborhoods in Franklin, founded by a former slave after the Civil War. So I have gotten to know some of these folks, and Walter and Derek Solomon, if you know Derek, um, just through living there. And I've learned a lot about our history that isn't as widely told through living there. Um, so I'm very honored to be here tonight and get to talk to some of these gentlemen about that history. So thank you guys for being here. Um, I'm going to ask you one by one to kind of just share your name just again and tell us a little bit about, um, well, for the three of you, what church you are pastor of and for the other two, how you got involved with this whole thing. So I'm going to let Mr. Joe Howard go first. Hello to everyone. Uh, the way that I got in... Speak into it. you got to hold it real close. Okay, thank you. Have. Thank you. Uh, the way I got involved with this project was um, uh, it was by email. As I say, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for the project. The project found me. Um, I had received an email from the head of black studies at Ohio State University. And I was excited about the, the email because I hadn't spoke to the fellow in a number of years. And he was praising me. In this email, I said, wow, there's some nice things he's saying about me. But then I scrolled down this thing, and there was another attachment to it. And there was some names on there that I didn't recognize. And they had some things to say about a project they were working on. And then I scrolled down more. I'm like, oh, here's another one. And they started talking about a monument and, and all this. I said, man, this is pretty cool. But then the thing happened at the end is after all this went on, it said, uh, Mr. Howard, can we contact you? And that was uh, Dr. Chris. 
that uh, had had those words to say, and that was the way that, you know, we began to talk about it, and he called me, and uh, things began to happen. I shared my work, told him where I was from. I was from Paris, Tennessee, and from there, they found a guy they wanted from Tennessee, and I was blessed that they enjoyed my work, and here I am today. What about you, Reverend Sawyers? Well, I was um, first, I'm the pastor of the West Harper Primitive Baptist Church here in Franklin, and um, I was called by Eric Jacobs, Jacobson uh, after there was a threat of some sort of uh, a riot of what have you on the city square in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, Eric had given me a call because he had first talked with uh, 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 Chris Williamson and he had also talked with uh, uh, Kevin Riggs and so he had called me and asked me to drop by his office and we had a very heart-to-heart -heart talk regarding the statute that was on the city square, one known as Chip. And so we had, uh, when I said heart-to-heart, -heart, I mean a very heart-to-heart -heart talk because we looked at that as to whether or not it should be taken down. And uh, it was the first time I had met Eric, and I don't remember talking to anyone before uh, uh, with that much depth that I didn't know. But he had a way of uh, really getting to you in such a way that you talk to him like that. To make a story short, when we finished talking, I had changed my mind about that statute coming down and I had made a friend that I was so glad to have made and we're still friends now and that was the uh, beginning of the Fuller Story uh, project for me. Pastor Chris. I think the beautiful thing about this is that Kevin Hewitt and I have been in relationship for years, over two decades. Uh, we go back to the Empty Hands Fellowship, uh, breakfast at McDonald's once a week, sharing a meal, sharing our lives together, being intentional about racial justice, racial reconciliation. So, uh, and we have partnered together over the years, our churches, uh, my pastor Strong Tower Bible Church that started here in Franklin, relocated to Nashville and uh, we, we would do harmony services prayer services on the square our churches would do outreach things together so uh, Kevin and I at one time even used to play basketball together back when we both had cartilage in our knees uh, so it was natural for us when I remember sitting in my living room watching what was going on in Charlottesville Virginia in 2017 it was on a Saturday and watching that car, you know, run into the crowd. And, you know, we found out later that Heather Heyer was hit and killed by that racist gentleman. So um, 
and, and at that point, things were already kind of on edge around the country concerning Confederate iconography and their placement. And so uh, things were bubbling. And one of uh, the members of my church, Dr. Mona Ivy Soto, she called me. She said, did you hear about the prayer vigil that's happening um, on the square in Franklin? I said, no. So she told me about it and the time. And so I went there. And when I got there, uh, Kevin was there, along with um, a couple other pastors in the community. And so we prayed together. And Kevin can tell you his part about uh, speaking with the media. But that was the beginning, because Eric then contacted me as well. Um, and like Hewitt, just had a wonderful conversation with him. And he, he taught me so much in just one initial meeting. And uh, he told me about uh, an African-American man named uh, Samson Keeble and uh, how he was able to acquire a seat in the government in Nashville. He was also a businessman. Uh, he was a barber. He just was telling me about his accomplishments. And we started talking more and more and more. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, why is it that I don't know these things that he's telling me? And that was the beginning of the fuller story. And, and I will say without any reservation that the vision for the fuller story came from Eric Jacobson because we were in a place where, again, let, let's take that down, let's remove that statue. But Eric just brought a perspective to us to say, what if we focused on what we can put up, what we can tell, the stories we can tell? Because if we remove the statue, the history isn't going anywhere. But there's a lot of history that people just don't know. What if we you know, were intentional to tell these stories, especially as it pertains to the African-American experience before, during, and after the Civil War, into Reconstruction, and on and on? And so that just marinated with all of our hearts. And so the three preachers put down our swords, plunged them into plowshares, and said, you know what? There is a better way. Thank you. Kevin, how did you get hooked into the Fuller story? Uh, yeah, Kevin Riggs, I've been born and raised in Nashville, uh, been in Franklin since 1989, uh, pastor of Franklin Community Church. And as Chris said, um, Hewitt and Chris and I met, uh, actually Chris and I met on the basketball court, and he invited me to this new group that was meeting called Empty Hands Fellowship back in the uh, early, mid-90s, somewhere around there. And that's where I met... Uh, that's where I met Hewitt, that's Scott Rowley, uh, Denny Denson, who, who I really wish was here uh, to see all this. Um, and, but anyway, so um, <clears throat> after the Charlotte events, um, I, I went to a, I was in a rally in Nashville uh, at the courthouse over the Nathan Bedford Forrest um, statue and uh, have been active in that for several years also trying to get that removed. And um, on the way back, the police and Somebody from the Franklin Police Department called me and said, hey, do you know anything about a rally going on tonight at, uh, you know, at 5 o'clock at Town Square? And I said, no. Uh, and at that time, I had uh, a group of pastors, about 40 local pastors, uh, on a text list. And so I texted, anybody know anything about a rally tonight? And no one knew, so I told the police, I said, no one knows about what the rally is. And, uh, but then later on, Elder Haynes, John Haynes, and he's here somewhere, um, he called me on the phone and said that he had a parishioner who was working downtown and the rumor that they had heard was that the uh, that the uh, the rally or the vigil was really sponsored by the KKK uh, that was the rumor and uh, I didn't really think that was true at least hope it, hope it wasn't true uh, I did tell the police that that was the rumor 
And, uh, and, and John Haynes said he was on his way down to, the, down to the rally, and I said, well, don't go without me, and let's meet and let's walk down there together. So we met. It was raining really, really hard, and we walked down uh, to the square together, and uh, it obviously wasn't the KKK. It was kind of a mom's group that kind of started this thing organically on, uh, on Facebook. We found out the lady who, who was kind of instrumental in putting that together, introduced herself, said we're local pastors. And, um, and she said, well, we would love for one of you to preach and one, one of you to pray and one of you to say something. And before I could say anything, Elder Haynes said, I'll pray. So that left me with having to say something. <laughs> um, and then uh, Chris showed up and some other pastors, and we prayed before that event. And then um, so I, and I, I um, spoke. It, it was an emotional time because I'd just come from one rally. And over the years, we had talked about different things about Chip as pastors and and so I mentioned that, um, is, you know, that we're, we could be just like Charlottesville. We've got our own problem. We've got this thing in the middle of our town. And maybe it's time we, we uh, start a serious discussion about relocating it, removing it. And uh, then the media picked up on that. And they talked to me afterwards, the news, all the news. And, and so um, the next few weeks was a really, really difficult week. A lot of hate, a lot of threats uh, coming my way. Uh, from that, uh, from what I said, uh, and th and the newspaper quoted me right because I did say we need to. Re they didn't take they didn't take it out of context. I said what I said, um, but the thing that came out of that was the next morning, um, Eric Jake's Eric contacted me, and I'd never met him before, and um, and we got together immediately. I think that day, I said, well, let's meet at uh, and then get some coffee, and um, and he told me his ideas about um, you know the context and doing something else. And I told him in that initial conversation, I said, you know, that, sounds, that may sound good to you, it may sound good to me, but we're just two white guys, we don't really have a say in this. Um, you, need, we, you need to reach out to some of my African-American brothers. Um, and so I, I gave him Hewitt's number and Chris's number, um, and then intentionally did not call Chris and Hewitt and tell them, hey, this guy's going to call you. I wanted them to hear it straight um, from Eric without any bias. And then after that, all of us got together, and we started going to the city. Um, and then, as a result of that, we are uh, where we are today. Thank you. Eric, so it seems like you're a, you're a common link here. So tell me a little bit about your background, being a historian, what it's been like telling stories about Williamson County. So, f for me, I think this journey began long before Charlottesville. Um, I, I had had ideas about what we could interpret in the square because there were stories about Franklin and Williamson County that weren't, you know, directly related to the Battle of Franklin. But nobody seemed to be terribly interested in telling those stories in years past, so, you know, sometimes tragedy opens up, opens up doors. And you know, I read Kevin's comments. I, w I went to the vigil, and I'd heard the same rumors I think everybody had heard. And when I stood on the corner right where Mellow Mushroom is, it was just a peaceful candlelight vigil. And so I saw Kevin's comments the next day, and I thought, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here. And it was an opportunity to not tear something down. It was to tell this other story, because what I did not want was for Franklin to devolve into what had happened in Charlottesville. You know, because it's easy for a lot of people who live in this nice, peaceful community to think, oh, it never happened to us. Yeah, yeah, it could. Um, I suspect people in Charlottesville didn't think, 
what was going to happen did. And, you know, whether we like it or not, the Confederacy is part of our history. It's a difficult part of our history, but removing the monument doesn't really solve anything, except then there's just not a monument. So I thought, let's, let's try something else. Let's talk about the black experience as best we can through interpretive markers and tell people what happened in the square. You know, years ago, and I think I've shared this story with everyone, I was at a meeting where there was some conversation about having another reenactment, you know, the Battle of Franklin, which I've always been kind of uneasy about because I always thought making combat into, like, kabuki theater was sort of... I, I just never was a big fan of reenactments. So one day I said, you know what I think we should do? I think we should reenact a slave auction in the square. And we should sell women and children, young men, most of the day. And everybody in the room looked at me like I was crazy. Now, I wasn't completely serious, but I wanted to get their attention. Because that's what happened here. And so the tragedy of Charlottesville opened up this door to have this conversation. And it was really incredible how receptive people were to all... We didn't call it the fuller story, but it was incredible, I think, how people so many people were receptive, realizing that it was time. It was time to confront our past. And there isn't widespread guilt or culpability among us, but it was okay to admit what happened in the past. And so we drank lots of coffee. We had great conversations. And then the ball started rolling. So, as you say, Eric, the ball started rolling. So... 2017, Charlottesville happens. Um, you guys come before the city of Franklin, the board, a couple months later, I think, um, with this proposal, and people were very, received it favorably. Um, the city has been a supporter of it from the beginning, pretty much. Um, some people were not so supportive. So can you talk about any some of the roadblocks that you all went through in getting this, um, this proposed project to be, to come to fruition? Well, I, I mean, I, is that for anybody? I'm sorry. Open said, question. It, it, um, to take something down, but I told, I, personally, I told uh, Eric and I told some of the other city leaders um, that it, whatever Hewitt and Chris wanted to do is what I was going to do. If this other route of putting something up um, was going to be better and, that's, and they were good with that, that's what we would do. But if it was no, that thing in the town's got to come down, then, then that's what I was going to do. I, it was... It, again, it wasn't my choice to make um, it, it, because the you know the the statue of the the statue affects me differently than it affects my brothers, um, and um, and so I really wanted to what can we do um, to try to rectify this instead of let's just appease you know let's just appease this um, and and wash it away uh, from that and so and so there was some initial response uh, the first time we met with the city. They were they were supportive. Something happened by the next time we met with the city, and and they weren't as supportive, um, and so we had to kind of backtrack and start meeting with them one on one, um, and uh, a lot of that had to do with because the daughters of the Confederacy um, uh, showed up, and eventually there was a lawsuit that the city uh, filed just to try to determine ownership of that property down there, um, and so and so there was some of that, and then there was personal uh, thing. Like I said, the the. Uh, after I said what I said, there was there was a rough. People were worried about me. People were afraid I was going to get hurt, killed, 
because of some of the things that were coming my way uh, from that. Once we got it through the city and got their support, it seemed like all of that went away. It seemed like the broad public, uh, everybody just started to embrace this. And so it was at the very, very beginning uh, when there was some um, conflict. And then once, once the city, after the second or third meeting with the city, um, and then it became more about what do you want to do, what are the markers, you know, how, how are you going to do this, um, then it just seemed like there was a turning point where the vast majority of, of emails that were coming were positive, the vast majority of phone calls, um, you know, the vast majority of people stop, stopping me in the street were positive, whereas before that, people would stop me in the, treat, in the street or at a restaurant and, and, and not be nice to me <laughs> uh, for different reasons. But then it, it just kind of changed, and then by the time it was over with, uh, there really, it, it really went uh, incredibly smooth at that point. There was a point when it seemed like all, the, all of the naysayers and conflict just stopped. At least that's what it seemed like to me. So for the audience to give just a little bit more additional context, so um, the city of Franklin and the United Daughters of the Confederacy were in a lawsuit. Um, the United Daughters of the Confederacy said that they owned the land of Town Square, that the city had deeded it to them 150 years ago. The city said, no, we have not. They ended up settling with the United Daughters of the Confederacy, deeding them the land under the Confederate monument and retaining ownership of the entire square. Um, they, I believe, Eric can correct me if I'm wrong, are deeding the land under the U USCT soldier statue to the Battle of Franklin Trust and the Fuller story. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Okay. So just so you all have that, that background, um, does anybody else just have a thought on, um, you know, kind of why the UDC came out of the woodworks to um, oppose this project? Well, I'd like to backtrack a little bit sure, on the please. question you asked because we were having a nice little warm conversation. We can go back to that. But that let's, go to, let's talk about because this. We, we, ha <laughs> we have to keep it real. Um, I think what's interesting is that, you know, Eric received, you know, more hate mail than normal, and Kevin is getting death threats. Um, what's interesting is, as, as for me, I don't know what happened with Hewitt, no one from the white community came after me, but it was people from my own community, from the black community, that came against me. Um, people who have lived here their whole life and who were upset with the statue in the center of town, and I get that, but never produced any action, uh, a plan that made sense concerning taking the statue down, taking Chip down. So when we came with our vision and our perspective, which we never said this is the best way, the only way, we just knew it was a unique situation that worked for the city of Franklin because that was not Nathan Bedford Forrest in the center of town or, or Alexander Stevens. It, it was a soldier who represents the dead, and not all of them were slave owners or racists. So, um, so it works for Franklin, what we're doing. But I had black people um, question me, even put down what we're doing, because it wasn't, in their mind, militant enough. To which I would say, no one's stopping you from doing what you feel you need to do. But you're not going to rain on this parade because you see movement is actually happening. Because when we first did this, we met with pastors in the black community because we want to honor them first. And we shared this vision. And, you know, they weren't trying, many of them were not trying to hear this. They didn't believe it could happen. Um, they were skeptical. And again, I understand that mindset. I get that. 
because so many things have come and gone through the black community. And so we've heard it all before, what's gonna make this any different? So I, I get that, but as it started picking up momentum, rather than getting supporters, we developed more haters. And so, um, so yeah, that, that was a little sad. Yeah, I understand it, but it was sad because again, you've been living here and you had a whole lot of time to do something and you haven't done anything. And if you still wanna do it, do it. You know, nobody's stopping you, but a lot of vitriol was aimed at us, or at least at me. I don't know what happened with Hewitt. Maybe they didn't say anything to Hewitt, because, you know, Hewitt, you know, might take them out. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that was disheartening at times. But, you know, being the leaders that we are, we don't come off the wall because of uh, naysayers and critics. You know, because they're there, that confirms what we're doing is right. And I believe what we're doing can help other cities in the South um, deal with their problem. And one of the things, as far as racial problem, but I love that it was organic with us, that Kevin knew, man, I gotta get my black brothers. And when we came, we knew it wasn't like a project that we were being added on as far as blackface, but we were actually being added at the, the beginning of this to, to think it through strategically. So it has worked, it is working, and it can work in other communities. Hugh, I don't know, man, how you felt what happened, but I'd love to hear. So my next question is, so the, the three of y'all are pastors, um, and I think it's really interesting that leaders in the faith community were the ones to bring this forward. Can you tell the audience what about your faith background compelled you to do this and how that played into it? Government has, in <clears throat> too many cases, attempted to pass laws to try to right wrongs. We know that what has happened is wrong, but I don't think there's a law that can make it right. These things are heart problems. Laws cannot change hearts. So what we did is we came together, and I guess I'll just have to fess up, because when I met with Eric Jacobson, and he's not a preacher, I don't guess yet, my mind was solidly made up that Chip needed to come down. But he changed my heart about that situation. And as we continued to meditate on what needed to be done, I think we all had a heart transplant. And I firmly believe that because we were all being motivated by something bigger than what we are is the reason that we have arrived at where we are now. Government is unable, in my opinion, to do these kind of things. So if we're in, or if this is in another location, 
it needs to be done by something other than government. Government can't do what the church or faith-based movement can do. That's the answer. Pastor Chris, Pastor Kevin, do you all have any thoughts or that kind of sum it up? Um, so last June, um, the Fuller story and the Battle of Franklin Trust raised, what was it, $150,000 for um, the commission, the building of a United States Colored Troops soldier statue, which has just been installed on Town Square today. I saw it installed before this. There's going to be a dedication on Saturday at 10.30 a.m. So um, obviously that's kind of what we're here for. But um, we have Joe Howard with us, who is the sculptor who created that statue. So I am hoping that Mr. Howard can tell us a little bit about just some of the details that make this statue unique and, and why it's special to him. Let me have a moment. Just, just let me have a moment. So I was talking to Mr. Howard before this, and I was kind of grilling him about, um, I said, well, how many statues have you, have you built? <laughs> Thinking as I think. And he said, well, we don't, we don't quantify things like that. It's not, about, it's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. And he's just, I kind of was like, I stand corrected, which happens often. Well, thank you, thank you. This, this, um, this particular project, when I got wind of what it was really about um, as an artist, um, a lot of times, you know, I have to take this inner part of me and, and sit down, if I must say, with myself and, and, and try and get a visual. Put the mic up, Joe. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. See, they, these guys had experiences with microphones. I, I monkey around with other things, <laughs> but, but uh, I had to, um, like I say, work, get within my own head and think about what it was I've been asked to do. And once I began to do that, uh, it really touched me emotionally about this project because uh, before I really talk about me getting anything deep about it, is that uh, I was asked one time, you know, uh, well, I was asked by the, by the group here, we would we'll like you to give the, the uh, title of the piece. And uh, I thought about it, and I said, March to Freedom. And I was said, uh, well, it doesn't look like the guy's marching. I said, he's marching every now, now and then along the way, you do the rest, but you still continue your march. And what was happening with, uh, with me with this piece is that I began to think about what these men were going through as, you know, I began to hear words about uh, slaves that escaped, actually escaped from the plant, various plantations to join uh, the military and fight in this war, meaning that they had to, you know, dodge the possibility of being hung being beaten if they get caught, 
whipped. All that stuff, you know, started going through my head. And it, it took those kind of things for me to come up with the title, March to Freedom, because before they fought, they marched. They marched. Before there was ever a Selma or any other type of uh, march that had happened where black people had to stand up for their own freedoms, they marched long before we were blessed with the opportunity to continue a march for our own freedoms. See, freedom didn't just happen back then. It still happens today. But really, a person of color is really the only one that can really deeply see that. So all these things, you know, um, you know, began to bubble in my head. You know, I, I, I came up on the tail end of Jim Crow, so I have some idea of what it's like to not to have been able to go to a restaurant, not to be able to get served at a filling station to get gas. I know what that's like. I remember my mother going through that. Uh, we was coming from Columbus, and she had two, me and my other brother, Norman, with me in the car with little kids. And mom stopped at a filling station and just waited. I remember the sun was starting to go down and we're still just sitting in the car. And mom said to me, she leaned over to him and said, son, they're not going to serve us. And the sun was going down. So at that time, I couldn't measure time, but I know it was a long time they would not serve us and give us gas. So, you know, when I, when I talk about something like that, you know, having those type of experiences, um, these things also played a role into my creativity about this piece. Um, I'll go ahead and share something with because I can do it now. In the piece, you'll, you'll see in the piece that um, there's a, a pair, of, I think I can go ahead and talk about it, can I? I can talk about the elements. It's already on Town Square, so <laughs> cat's out of the bag. Yeah, you, you're going to see it, you'll see it, so I'm going to let you give you a little something now so when you do see it you'll have a better understanding what is there but the way that I have the soldier um, I have him with his foot up on a stump that stump is to represent as far as I'm concerned the tree of sorrow a tree in which men were tied to children were tied to for sale not only were they there for sale but they were there beaten with whips we all know about that in chains they were sold and they were treated like animals. So all that there is about what that stump is, the tree has been removed. The tree is gone. And I have the tree as though the tree is deteriorated. You'll see the bark where it's separating from the stump. And that's all is to say with that foot on top of it, this is not to be anymore. Not only that, you'll see a pair of shackles. There's a chain draped across uh, a branch coming from the back of that, and you'll see there's a pair of shackles. The shackles are connected to the tree, but part of the shackles are buried within the dirt in which they work so hard upon. When you look at the shackles, you see the shackles are broken, and that's to show that they are never to be chained again. So this piece is not just a piece of art that is just there with a man standing with a rifle in his hand. It's not a man standing there in a dress uniform with a rifle at his side or a sword. But once you see the piece, you'll understand once you see the face. 
and all of it comes together. So it took all those things. Now, one thing about it, when it, when it came, I mean, all this was inside of me, and I said, man, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get these elements? You know, the, 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 you know, the bayonet, the, the rifle, all the gear, and I'm just, oh, what am I going to do? I looked online like everybody does today and looked in some books. It just didn't do it for me. I said, I got to have the real stuff and so I could really work from this from my inner being. I met a fella some maybe now 12, 14 years ago, that long ago. I met him at a, a reenactment. And this guy, man, he had the most beautiful beard. I mean, I, his look, I just fell in love with his beard. And I asked him, could I uh, take his photograph to, I wanted to do a drawing of him. And he gave me his card. He was a union, um, he, he, he played the role of a union a field doctor. I think maybe that's the proper thing, I'm not sure. But he said, I'm not one to carry a gun. He said, I'm one out there to heal. I said, okay. I said, I appreciate that. So he, get, he actually had a business card. Kept it for years. And here comes this project. I said, oh, I remember that guy. I remember that guy. Man, if I only had that card. I looked all over my house for that card because I knew I never threw it away. Oh, I know I got that card. I looked and looked and could not find it. Up to the bottom, could not find it. And I was just about to give up because I said, I don't know where I'm going to get all these goods. I'm going to have to go back on that and do that thing online. I went back in my bedroom in a little basket I keep, a little small braided basket. And I had already gone through it because some things that are very important to me I put in it. I looked at it twice, could never find that card. But this last time, voice came to me, go look in that basket. I went back in there again and just put my hand in it and pulled the card out. <laughs> I pulled the card out. I called the fella, didn't know if he was still living or whatever, but I called him. He, and after all them years, he said, I remember you. I said, wow, okay. And I told him what I was trying to do, and he told me to come on out to his house. And he lived roughly 50 miles away from me. And when I got there, he said, Joe, I, I got what you need but I don't have it at home. He said, I'm a Southern soldier. He said, I, I reenact the Southern side, but I got a friend. I said, cool, man, I appreciate this. So uh, I met the fella, had a short talk with him, told him what I was doing, and I said, I would love to photograph him, photograph his, his equipment. Could I borrow it just for a day? I'll bring all of it back. He said, Joe, you can have it as long as you need it. And I was like, this is meant to be. So after about maybe two months into the project, I said, I got to return this man's, you know, all of his equipment, because I mean, it's precious to him. He said, keep it as long as you need, Joe. He said, keep it till the end of your project. So I kept his, all of his gear for almost a year. I'm saying all that to say that I really believe that I was chosen to do this project. I really do believe it. I'm going to say something now that I may say again Friday, but I'm going to say it now anyway. I'm going to tell you just, I told you how Brother Chris here had uh, asked for seeing my, my, my uh, work, and then eventually they said, we want you to do this. But then I began to think about it, and I said, man, I said, 
Your name is Joe Frank. Remember Frank. Joe Frank Howard. I went to Frank Clinton Elementary School. I was raised in Franklin County, Ohio. And I'm doing a sculpture piece for Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> so that, that's all I'm saying for now. <laughs> for now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so in Franklin, we have, I mean, as we're all aware, there's a lot of history here. And until somewhat recently, a lot of it wasn't shared. Um, in fact, the building we're sitting in, um, I've met a lot of people that used to tell me um, blacks were not allowed to come in through the front door. I think Reverend Sawyers might have a story about that. Yes, in the, uh, in the 19, I guess, 60s, um, the, this theater was segregated and uh, if you were a person of color, you had to come in the door and sit in the balcony. Um, and uh, uh, whites would sit on the floor. Uh, it's kind of funny uh, that it was done that way, but uh, I don't know why that no one ever thought about it, but the balcony seats were the best seats. <laughs> Well, there you go. And now you can say wherever you want, That's even right. on the stage. Um, Eric, would you tell us a little bit about, so we, we know, we've heard there's a United States Colored Troops soldier statue. Some people might be wondering, what are the, what are the USCT? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And a little bit about also what happened and why that area that the statue's been placed on is significant. So I, at some point in the process, we moved beyond just talking about placing interpretive signs, and we began discussing a, a statue. And almost immediately, the discussion was a statue about a black man in a blue uniform who served in the United States Army. So. I, I want to, I, I don't want to necessarily choose my words carefully because I don't, I'm not worried about offending anyone. I want to make sure the story makes the most sense. Um, I think part of the problem with the USCT story is that it was so unknown to the vast majority of Americans because it had literally been just covered up. Um, former USCTs were among the greatest resistors in the period after the American Civil War. Places like, um, uh, the Colfax massacre in Louisiana, where hundreds of USCTs were killed, um, led to eventually the resistance breaking down, and a lot of these former black men just simply uh, burned their uniforms, threw them out, or stopped talking about being soldiers. And so the stories were, they just weren't well known. I mean, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person, and I was not taught about USCTs when I went to school. And I think for the country as a whole, it wasn't really until the movie Glory came out in 1989 where people began to understand, well, gosh, there were black troops, and the black troops all fought, of course, on one side. 
because the other side was seeking to perpetuate slavery, so of course these black men would serve for the United States Army and Navy. The door is opened. Chris and I just talked this morning about this. Slavery is the, is the issue that drives the country to war. It's what is at the heart of secession. But of course, when the war begins, the President of the United States is focused on trying to preserve the Union. And that is President Lincoln's stance. But by 1862, barely a year into the war, he realizes it is possible that the United States could win the war. And when I say United States, that's really what it was. We often call it the Union or whatever. It was the United States fighting a against a rebellion, an insurrection, if you will. Okay, and so the President of the United States decided that it was possible that the U.S. could win the war and there would still be slavery. And the cost had already been so great that Lincoln opted to move in a different course. Lincoln had always been opposed to slavery, but as a lawyer and as the President elected to uphold the Constitution, he knew that slavery was legal laws. You have to change hearts. And Lincoln decided to issue the most famous executive order of all time, the Emancipation Proclamation. And he declared that all people enslaved in areas of rebellion were free, but a great provision of the proclamation was that black men could join and enlist in the United States Army and Navy. And thus it began. Within six months, the 54th Massachusetts, who were forever remembered in the movie Glory, for which Denzel Washington won an Oscar, and Matthew Broderick became far more than, um, you know, the character that he had played in earlier movies. He became a serious actor. And these black men joined by the thousands. Now, remember, these were men who were not citizens of the United States, and many of them were runaway slaves, probably 75 or 80 percent. They were not citizens, and they were still slaves, and yet they were fighting not only for their own freedom, but to defend the United States of America. What more noble cause is there? What more noble cause could there be than these nearly 180,000 men who gave of themselves and would suffer some of the most awful fates because many of these men knew almost immediately that they were not to be treated equal because the Confederate government made it very clear they would not exchange black troops. They would not treat them as prisoners of war. They would send them back to slavery. And at places like Fort Pillow on the Tennessee River north of Memphis, many were just murdered. It takes an immense amount of bravery to continue to enlist when you know that might be your fate, and yet they did. And these black men fought all over, from Virginia to the Carolinas, to Arkansas, to Mississippi, and into Tennessee. They fought at the Battle of Nashville, Bryce's Crossroads, Tupelo, the Crater, Jenkins Ferry, on and on and on. And I think that we all quickly coalesced around the idea that it was long overdue to recognize these men. You drive across this country, you can see statues to Confederate soldiers and, frankly, white U.S. soldiers all over the place. How many USCT statues have you ever seen? None, personally. We, ca <laughs> we can't fill two hands. We think there are five or six. 160 years after the American Civil War, there are six statues at best.
there's not a single one that's in a public square until today. I'm going to let Eric take a sip of his water before I make you tell us a little bit about the Freedmen's Bureau that was there as well. <laughs> well, the Freedmen's Bureau was, of course, the big government project to try and put government in control of a solution. <laughs> and right. it fell apart very quickly. They tried for years. But the resistance during Reconstruction after the war simply became too much. And I can say this as someone who's not born and raised in the South, much of the culpability for the end of Reconstruction was that many Northerners and people in the West simply grew tired and they gave up. We walked out and we left the South, white and black, rich and poor. And it really wasn't until, I would argue, almost 100 years later in the aftermath of another great war, when veterans of that war, still serving in segregated units, came home like James Stevenson, who lived just down the road in Columbia, Tennessee, a U.S. Navy midshipman who'd fought against the Japanese and had finally had enough and was being hassled at a store with his mother over the repair of, I believe, a toaster and he grabbed the clerk who was giving him a bunch of grief and he threw him out the window. And James Stevenson ended up being thrown in jail. But it was at that moment, almost a hundred years after the war, that the hearts and minds of people began to change. And I know it's easy to say that, well, not enough progress has been made. That may be true, but we have made tremendous progress. And it was those USCT soldiers and the Freedmen's Bureau and the people who resisted during Reconstruction and Jim Crow and the, and the James Stevensons of the world. Martin Luther King, everybody knows his name. It was the silent people or the people whose names we don't know who were not silent. And I think that the statue itself embodies the, the dreams of not just 180,000 black men, but their wives and their girlfriends and their children and their mothers and their fathers who may have never been free and their children and their grand... It embodies millions of people. That's what's so powerful about the statue. And I think the story that is finally, you know, in the 21st century beginning to emerge, it's a positive story too. You know, it's, it's laden with a lot of difficult episodes. It's all, it's all tough to talk about. But in the end, I think the USCT statue is a positive story about men trying to rise up and do something that wasn't just about themselves. And I think if more people would do work that was beyond just themselves, we might all be better off. Preach. So I'm, I'm going to ask us all one more question, sort of open the floor um, to questions from the audience. Um, I do want to say I'm, I'm in my mid-20s and I grew up, you know, learning and loving history and learning about the civil rights movements, plural, um, and always thought, well, you know, it's just, it's hard to imagine these things. Even my parents, obviously growing up white, they experienced certain things that their black friends were treated totally different. And I, it was hard for me to imagine that. Um, and I always thought, well, if, you know, a anything like that would ever happen, you know, I would have to, you know, speak up. 
And it's only been in the past couple of years that I think we've all sort of started to notice, I think that time is now. Um, so I want you guys each in turn to sort of um, talk to the audience if, you, if people in the audience have oh, maybe over the past couple of months or years um, started to notice that there's <laughs> certain inequities in our community and, and want to take steps to remedy that and to reach out across communities, how can they, how can they do that? My, my thoughts would be this. First, I think individuals need to have a, a love for where they live. And in loving where you live, it should give you a concern. When you see that things are not like they need to be, you need to make sure that you have enough concern to want to do something about it. Now, how do you do that? It may be a school situation. It may be a situation where there is an inequity uh, in a, an employment area doesn't make any difference really where it is, but it only takes a committee of one to get something started. What I would encourage you to do is to think about what really is wrong. And once you determine what that is, then I think that you need to sit down, jot it down, decide what it is clearly. If you need someone to go with you, talk to a friend, talk to a neighbor, talk to a fellow employee. And if you can get that together, then I'd say start at that point and begin to move forward. If you'll do that, then I think you're going to be an asset to where you work, an asset to your school, or an asset to your community. The, the, the question was how, how to get people involved in, in making things more equal. Is that in essence? And uh, just also getting involved in your community and yeah. bridging gaps and meeting people that aren't just like you, that don't just all live in your neighborhood. Yeah, well, you know, we, it starts obviously with individuals, but that only goes so far. We're, I think we're at the point now where society where nothing's gonna change till we start addressing the systemic problems that we have. Um, I can be best friends with, with Hewitt and Chris, um, and you know, we can get, we can get along, but um, there's still systemic issues. Just today, uh, you know, part of our ministry is working with the homeless in, uh, uh, in Franklin and Williamson County. And just today, I was filling out a report for the government of, of who we, a Section 6 or Title 6 thing, which is on equality. And I was having to come up with the number of people that we've helped 
um, and then you know break it down into race. Okay, so in, in Williamson County, in Franklin, Williamson County, less than 5% of the population are African American. All right, now it used to be 12%. So African Americans are leaving our community because they're the ones most affected by gentrification because you can't really talk about poverty without talking about race. And so um, the people who are being the most hurt are, are the people who have been here the longest, basically. They've been here for generation after generation after generation after generation. They can no longer afford to live here. Um, and so you need to petition your aldermen. You need to talk to your city leaders about what are you doing about affordable housing? What are you doing about low-income housing? How come, you're not, how, come you're letting, how come you're not even trying to help uh, the problem? How come you're leaving it all to the nonprofits and, uh, uh, and, and private businesses? There are some things that you can do. But anyway, so I, feel, I, I went over the numbers, and just very, very quickly, and this is just off the cuff of my head, but it's just th these are accurate from what I, I did a few hours ago. Um, since uh, January, from January through June, we, we have put 606 people um, in hotels who were, who were experiencing homelessness. So 606 nights uh, of that. Less than 5% of the population in Franklin is, is uh, African American. 43% um, of those that we put in hotels are African American. Do you see the, the systemic problem there, the disproportion there? You know, and so you've got you to gotta address that issue. Um, I, I go to um, uh, Riverbend and go to, to death row every week. And um, again, across the state of Tennessee, maybe 14, 15 percent of the population are African American. Uh, almost half the people on, on death row are African American. Forty percent of those on death row are from Memphis. Just one city. So those are the systemic, those are the systemic problems that we have. Then you, then you can look at leadership uh, across the city, be it the county commissioners, the, the, the aldermen, the uh, the you know high-ranking officers in the police department, hospital, or whatever, and see where where is the minority there, and we haven't even begun to talk about what we've done to the to the indigenous people, the Native Americans in our own town. Um, you know, this, at one time, Tom Lawrence will tell you in the 1600s, I think maybe 1400s, there was over a half a million people who lived in this landmass that we call Williamson County. And we're, 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 we're thinking we're growing because we've got a couple, hundred, a couple hundred thousand. A half a million. They were, they were Native Americans. Where are they? Well, Andrew Jackson came here to our city, signed a declaration to get them all out of here so he could bring in slaves and grow cotton. We haven't even started telling that story. We need a statue of a Native American somewhere uh, around, around the square. You, you see, so... And so I can, I can be nice, I can, I can be nice to people who are different from me, um, and I should be, and I, and I can do my best to break down that individual basis, uh, but we have got to start addressing the systemic issues that we have. And those systemic issues have to be taught, and you can call it critical race theory, you can call it whatever you want to, but we have got to honestly talk about history in our schools and let the chips fall where they may. If you feel bad about it, that's just the way it is. That's right. You know, because this is, this is the truth. My family didn't have anything to do, as far as I know, my family didn't, I, the, you know, we didn't come to the United States until after the Civil War. But I know I have benefited as a white person from the things that were put in place uh, during, during the very founding of our country, back when if you didn't own property, you couldn't even vote. Well, today, <laughs> affordable housing, what, when when we, our city talks about affordable housing, they're talking about home ownership. No one is talking about affordable rentals. Because still in our country, if you don't own property, you don't have rights. And that was put in at the very beginning of our country, and it's carried through all the way to the day. And so until we start addressing the systemic, and it has to start with the churches. That's where it has to start. The government can't do it, you see. 
But we are to be the as as followers of Jesus. We are to bring the beloved community. We are to pray, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come on earth right now as it is in heaven. You're right. You're and right so here. we have to we have to regain our prophetic voice, um, and um, and that's only, and so that's how that's how it's going to happen. When we talk about we don't want that in our backyard. Uh, we don't want it here. Uh, that's got to go somewhere else. It's going to affect my property values. At that moment in time, we are putting property above people. And our city has done that more, more than once, where profits and property are more important than how people are doing in our society. Jeremiah 29.7 says that we are, to pay for, we are to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. And when it prospers, we all prosper. And so my prosperity is wrapped up in the least of these. I am not going to profit personally until everyone is, is, is profiting from that. And that's what we got to do. We can, we can hold hands and sing kumbaya all we want to. But until we start addressing the systemic issues, we're, we're, just, we're just wasting our time. Pastor Chris, you, you are a founder of a very successful, one of Franklin's only, well, now you're in Nashville, but only multiracial churches. Um, so I think you have some unique insight into this and, and just uh, creating deep and authentic, not just conversations, but communities where people understand each other and want to work together to help one another with these problems. Yeah, and we've been at it for a long time now, 26 years, and we're still learning. Uh, we're still learning how to do this, how to dwell together in unity. And for us, unity doesn't mean uniformity. Um, that we are truth tellers, we speak the truth in love, we're not trying to invoke guilt on anyone, uh, but we do speak truth, and truth can bring conviction of conscience, which is a good thing. So when we're talking about race and racial injustice um, from scripture, um, we have to make sure that when people come and visit our church, they understand that that is not all we talk about, but there are people who are super sensitive and think that's all we talk about. But really when we talk about the gospel and how Jesus ministered, many times we're thinking individual as opposed to communal. In the West, we've made salvation personal. Uh, it's about going to heaven. And as Kevin said, not about bringing heaven down to earth and about uh, the community being converted. Uh, again, that's part of the whole Western uh, me, myself, and I focus. So we do our best to remind people that the gospel is just as much Luke 4:18 as it is John 3:16, where Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor to set at liberty those who are captive um, and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, that that is just as much the gospel dealing with social matters. But for so long, the church, as Kevin was saying, that needs to lead the way, we've been told that social things are not the gospel, whereas in the black church, that was our understanding of the gospel. So when we would come to church, the messages, the teaching was dealing with systemic and social issues because that's where we were as a people. And so when you merge black and white together, the different cultures, many times white people don't, are not coming to church for a socially informative word. They're coming for a word, three points, and tell me about heaven, and I'll go on. So when you're merging these kinds of experiences, it can be 
challenging. But again, if we start off with the fact that it's not about us, it's about God, and it's about how do I serve my neighbor. And if my neighbor is hurting, then I am hurting. If my neighbor's rejoicing, then I'm rejoicing. So can we have that kind of place in church where we can lament together as well as rejoice together? So when we start talking about compassionate Christianity, which George Bush brought in, but Christians didn't show compassion, it, it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, and we put tags on people. If, if you teach this and preach this and do those things, you're liberal. If you stand with these things, you're conservative. And we let these tags divide us and define us as opposed to letting God give us our identity and his word set the standard for our lives. So it's not easy, but it wasn't easy for the USCT soldiers either, as Eric said. Uh, uh, but it's not about comfort. It's about truth, doing the right thing. Uh, uh, Rosa Parks did the right thing. Uh, Mother Teresa did the right thing. Uh, Martin Luther King did the right thing. And I think if each one of us just did the right thing, and as Kevin said, not just on an individual level, but use our power on a systemic level, because we all have influence and some have more than others, and we stand up in the boardroom, and then we also uh, make sure that our dining room also reflects the boardroom, and the boardroom reflects the dining room, things can change. But, uh, but it won't change without someone shaking the tree. You know, when you shake the tree, some fruit will fall. You, you gotta shake it. And, uh, and, and, and you'll get persecuted, but so what? I mean, hey, it's worth it when we see change come about. Thank you. So we are going to open the floor. If anybody in the audience has any questions, you can come right up here to the front. There's a microphone. And if no one has any questions, I can just entertain you with a song, maybe. <laughs> maybe not. Mr. Howard, you spoke of that um, Civil War reenactor whose yes, face touched you so much and whom you photographed. Is that the face of the statue, or is there something else, some other person, on whom this statue is modeled? Uh, the face is not on any, any statue. Um, I didn't look at any Civil War. I had already seen, like I say, things I've seen online. You know, I looked at those. Uh, but when I had something in my, in my head, I didn't want a, a, a handsome man. You know, some people, you know, they want somebody looking, you know, muscled up and, you know, got this smooth, pretty, you know, all that pretty stuff, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they, they want that sort of a thing, but I didn't have that in me. I, I said, this has to look like somebody has been through something. You know, they've been through something. You know, they were going through something before they got into the military. They, they had to have that look. And I thought about that and um, I said, no, this can't be no pretty man, attractive individual. You know, I don't want him all buff and everything, but uh, I saw, I knew what I had in my head. But I wanted a real somebody, and I kept saying, I did, I'm gonna just tell it like it is. I, I said, Lord, show me somebody. I'm looking, but show me somebody. I was in my house, 
I looked out the dining room window and I saw my neighbor cutting grass. And I said, whoa, Lord, there he is. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> I saw this, this, this brother cutting, cutting his grass with his bald head and the look as he was cutting the grass, sweat just come. I said, Lord, there he is. I said, I wonder how's he gonna be when I approach him. Uh, I, I gotta see if I can take a photo, photographs of him. So I, I did, I went over, climbed the fence, went over and I talked to him, I said, he cut the lawnmower off. I said, brother, I gotta ask you a question. He's looking at me strange. Yeah, Joe, what you want, man? He said, I, I said, man, I, I wanna take some photographs of you. I'm gonna work on this sculpture piece and you got that look I want. Can I take some photographs of you? He said, yeah, man, yeah, go ahead, do what you want to do. He stopped what he was doing. And I took my cell phone and I shot front, both sides, back and top of his head, you know, to, to help me do it. And I told him, I said, I don't want to copy you as you are. I want you as a reference to take me where I want to go. And he said, hey, man, go ahead, Joe, go ahead. So I did that, and that's how I came up with the face. I had something inside of me first that I wanted. Uh, I, like I said, I wanted to look at someone that, that has been through something, has been there, but yet has some pride about it and strength about it. And that's what I look for, and I tried my best to put that in the piece. So did that answer, sir? Uh-oh, looks like Pastor Walter's coming to ask a question. No, I have an online question. Online question. Okay, so Go I ahead. No, I don't have questions because, no. <laughs> question is, to any one of you, what is the legacy that you want to leave behind with March to Freedom? What is the legacy that I wish to leave behind with March to Freedom? The main thing that I have to say for me, I can say I'm an artist, I'm not a historian, um, is that to have the idea that it takes someone to go through in order to see the light on the other side. And I hope that in the work that I've done, because my daughter, the first thing that she said to me, said, Dad, this piece is your legacy. I said, my legacy? I said, Dad, this piece is your legacy. She said, Dad, this piece can't help you but to feel. And I said, wow, okay. So my hope is, as far as my legacy, is not... I'm not one that has ever been one to say, look at me. Uh, I've been more kind of a humble kind of guy. And, um, but I know that it's gonna leave something for me. That's, it's the way life works. And I hope that people will be able to look upon this and as far as me say, I gave them myself, put my real self into the piece, that it can be a light to others to say that we came from something and we have a chance to continue to go to something. It's not over. It's not over. 
you know, your struggle is still here. So I pray that the generations that come after it, you know, will be able to reap from it and be able to pass on something to their children. And if they can look at it and find my name on the backside of it, praise God for that. <laughs> When we were talking about various ideas, um, and Eric began to school us about what happened in the center of town, that before the Confederate monument was placed there in 1899, um, the first courthouse of this city was in the center of town there. And attached to the courthouse was a market house where, as Eric said earlier, there would be sales of animals, livestock, as well as human beings. And one of the things we said early on was, okay, let's put a marker up telling that story. But I distinctly remember saying, but I don't want that to be the only story we tell as far as about the enslavement of my people. And so as we began talking more about the whole USCT and, and we're all learning together, I was like, that's the image that needs to be uh, put there in bronze in front of the courthouse. Um, an image of a strong black man. An image of a black man who's fighting for his freedom and for the freedom of the country. That that image, that we control that particular narrative as opposed to how we have been depicted in Hollywood and in music uh, on the news as far as what black men are supposed to be, as far as whether we were characterized as buffoons, sex-crazed, violent, uh, drug addicts, drug users, all those things that the media you know, just keeps putting forth about us. And for this, that we had a chance to kind of direct and control how black men would not only be represented but represented to the broader society because children need to see these images older people need to see these images so that they have something to compete with the negative images of what they have been told we are as far as a community so when i think of legacy i'm thinking of what people are going to see and walk away with we said early on we wanted this statue at eye level and not high up on a pedestal, because we wanted people to look in his face and see his humanity, see his dignity, see his courage, see his personhood. And man, when we saw that statue today, we got a sneak peek. We, you know, I guess you know, we, we could do that. We got a sneak peek of it today in person. And that was my first time, as Eric said, as a black man seeing a statue of another black man like that, of that magnitude of a USCT soldier, um, I couldn't put it into words. It was surreal, it was emotional. And he wasn't even fully disrobed, they just like kind of removed his, so we could see his face. And we looked at his face and it was, it was wild. So I know it's going to have that effect on people because one of the things Joe said earlier to me he said, now, Pastor, when, when I make this, this piece is going to have to have movement. Even though it's a stationary piece, it's got to have movement so it doesn't become boring and predictable. So he says, I may enlarge the hands a little bit. 
I may enlarge the feet a little bit just to give it weight and depth and movement. And I may make the head a little bit larger. And I'm going to call out the wrinkles in his face. And he put that beard on him. And I tell you, it moves. He, he succeeded in what he set out to do. And we had a moment today in the garage looking at it. And I can't imagine what's going to happen when uh, the children pull that cloak off on Saturday and people get to get close to it. So when we talk about legacy, it is redefining what black men have been portrayed and characterized as. It, it is giving people, especially children, a new understanding of the Civil War and of the bravery of these men. So when I think of legacy, I'm thinking of that. You know, just minds being open, hearts being open, people being transformed just by art, and uh, art that is connected to truth that has not been told well. So, and, and for legacy, a lot of times that's for people that, that have died. I think for us, this is just the beginning. Uh, there are more things that we believe we can do. Um, and, and, and again, vision, putting things before people to open up their minds and their eyes and their hearts. Um, I, I think something can, can start around the country. I mean, they put these things up in the 1900s and the 1950s for a reason, because they were communicating a vision of white supremacy, white dominance, fear, and control. And so now we're putting up something that's communicating black liberation and black value, black personhood, black dignity, and again, even calling out the best of this country. So let this thing mushroom and blow across the country where other cities say, let's do the same thing. Man, oh, y'all get me excited now. I'd like to say this also, that uh, I, uh, I was very moved when I saw that today, too. But I wanted to just uh, uh, tell you that I don't know that I have a legacy, but I would like to say the impact uh, that uh, this has made on me. I don't think that there is a time now that the city of Franklin or Williamson County will be able to deny what this statue will stand for. If you know or if you didn't know all that has gone on historically, this statue will be in your face. You can't deny what he stands for. People who are visiting Franklin will be able to see, they will be able to read, they will be able to look upon him, read the markers. They won't be able to deny what the marker stands for and what the stature stands for. But again, as I said earlier, most importantly, future generations are going to be able to read and know what history is all about 
that that has been hidden. And I'm so glad that what that history is going to tell them is what my history never told me. That's what I believe the impact of that USCT statute is going to say. I think, I mean, to me, legacy is what somebody else writes about you after you're gone, <laughs> um, more than what you can, you know, you can't determine what your legacy is. But um, two, two things, there are two really, really fond memories I have of this whole experience. One was after one of the um, BOMA meetings, when, and it, it was down near the end, I don't know if it was the very last one, but it was down near the end where BOMA was, was being, you know, 100% um, supportive of everything that we're doing. Uh, we left, um, the four of us left, and a, a photographer wanted to take our pictures, so we walked down to the square, and we were just walking around, and uh, I, I, Hewitt kind of walked away from us, and he was up on the square, up, up on, the, on the grass up there. And, um, I, and, you know, I've known Hewitt for a long time, so I could really tell this was a, a moment for him. Um, he was just kind of up there by himself. Um, and uh, and so I went so I went up there and I said, "Hey man, you doing okay?" And he looked at me and he said, "This is the first time I've ever been up here." Now think about that. Born and raised in this county, had never been up there because there was no reason for me to come up here. Is what he said. And so I'll, I'll never forget that. Uh, and then really the other one was really today when we saw when we saw the unveiling. Um, I was trying to. To, to get pictures of it, but then I, I, I stood away because I remember a few months, well, back at Juneteenth, uh, Chris said something to me about he wanted, he couldn't wait, he wanted to spend some time alone with the statue. Um, you know, you remember, you know, he wanted, and I thought, what? And, but then the more I thought about that, I thought, okay, I, and so I, I tried to step away today and just kind of watch Hewitt and Chris look at the statue. And so that's another uh, kind of memory that I'll take because, because to me, the that statue is one of the most important things that I'll ever be involved in in my whole life. But I still don't think, because I'm white, that I can quite comprehend um, what it really means um, for Chris and Hewitt and, and others. And so just to sit back and, and, and look at that and, and watch that and, and, you know, I know how important it is to me, but it's got to be more important because, again, uh, for their children and grandchildren to come down and see somebody who looks like them. And Chris always talked about representation being important, representation being important. Uh, somebody, you know, and, and I, I think I've, saw, I've seen that. So for me, the legacy of all this has really been that it's not really about me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not dumb. I mean, I know a year or two from now, everybody, people will forget whatever role I had in this. You know, I'm, it's, it's over with. It's about, it's about the statue. But it's really about the difference I think it's going to make um, and uh, in the next generation, especially the next generation of, of color. Now, what I'm really looking forward to on a selfish reason, selfishly what I'm looking forward to is seeing a pamphlet from the Chamber of Commerce or the Visitor Bureau and on the front of that pamphlet to come visit Franklin, it's the USCT soldier, yes. not Chip. Yes. That's what I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> you know, um, and, and when that happens, okay, we, we've done something here. We've changed the narrative. I, I don't know what the legacy will be. I, I'm, although I'm the CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust, I'm really a historian, and I, I've always believed that history provides guideposts for the future. 
And I think one of, because this is an uplifting story of a group of people representative of a larger group of people trying to be agents of their own freedom and of their own change and fighting for something bigger than themselves. It's easy today to convince ourselves that we have never been more divided. I assure you, we were more divided in 1860 than we are today. And that's, that's a lesson that we should all take to heart. It is easy today to say that when this country was founded, it was founded on all of the wrong principles. Except I'm going to leave you with this thought, which I'll tie to the USCTs in today. We are about 160 years removed from our Civil War. When the Declaration of Independence was written, the founding generation was about 160 years removed from when the first Africans were brought to the shores of this country. And I assure you, with every fiber of my DNA, the founders believed the creed that all men are created equal. They meant it, but they did not know quite what to do with this condition of not just slavery, but of race, an inferiority of a race and supremacy of another. They did not know. We don't know all the solutions to our problems today. They didn't know the solutions to theirs, but they believed there was a God, a creator, who made us equal. And they gave us that promise. And the best evidence of that is that the Confederacy, the secessionists, the ones who just tried to destroy the United States of America, said that the Declaration of Independence didn't mean what it said. And the President of the United States said that it did. And so, as Lincoln was often wont to say, I guess that's the rub. I think one of the legacies of this statue and of the 180,000 men who fought to defend the United States is that the Confederacy was wrong. Yes. Let me just say that again. Yes. Etch that in stone. The Confederacy was wrong. And you know how I know it was wrong? Because 180,000 black men and about 2.5 million white men stood up to defeat it. Yes. And if we start to change people's hearts and minds that the Confederacy was wrong, we will all be in a better place. That doesn't mean everything about it is obliterated from the landscape and we don't teach people about it. My goodness gracious, it's all the more reason to teach people about it. It is why concentration camps have been saved. I'm not comparing the two, but sometimes you have to see exactly what you were dealing with to understand how wrong it was. We are 160 years removed from the end of the war. And the legacy is finally, after all of these years, I think we are in a much better place to be honest with one another, white and black, black and brown, white and brown, all other colors, all other races. There is no north or south or east or west. There's one country 
the United States of America, and it is still up to us to decide what our path is. This country is filled, littered with mistakes and chaos and bad decisions. As I told Chris earlier, it's still the country people crawl across the desert, swim across the ocean to try to get here. And these men that are embodied in that statue, I think, would be proud as hell to see that we remembered their sacrifice to save this country from itself. That's a legacy to be proud of. Unless we have any other questions, I feel like that pretty, pretty well summed it up. If we don't have any more questions, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I saw her walking away. I thought she got scared after that last part. I just didn't want to interrupt. I'm so excited to be here and experience this. And I wanted to ask, I've been in the operating room now for 30 years. And I am a nurse anesthetist. And every time I look over the cover, during operation, the entire body is covered except for the operational site. And you cannot tell the difference between black, white, brown, if that happens to me every day. So I wanted to ask, you know, we have many Caucasian sisters and brothers here. What can they do now going forward, starting today, to make a difference? I have one quick answer, and this goes back to the early days of the Fuller story, and I think it's when Chris and I first had lunch. And Chris asked me what I thought of the term white privilege. And I said, well, I'm not sure I really like the, 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 the label, because I don't like labels. Then everything becomes the label. Everything is racist. Everything is sexist. Everything is white privileged. Everything, you can label everything to death. And of course, Chris kept pushing me and he said, but what do you really think of it? And I said, I, I, I'm not sure what you're getting at. He said, what do you really think of the, the, the idea behind the label if you don't like the label? And I said, okay, I'll admit this. I'm a white guy, I'm a white guy, and I'm a Protestant. I got the three best cards this country ever dealt with. And he looked at me, and he said, that's it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, there are tons of white people who won't even admit that. Just admit it. Just admit it. It's OK. And if you admit it, then that's a good step forward. That's a huge step forward, because it isn't about whether you worked hard or you went to college or whatever. It's the fact that nobody has ever given me a hard time because of the color of my skin. That's an advantage. Just admit it. And we were kind of joking. Oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> we were kind of joking earlier that the white male privilege piece worked in this case because had Hewitt and I just gone to the city and said we want to do this, I don't know if we would have gotten as far as we are today. So it took white brothers 
going in, using your privilege in order to help and serve others. So, um, and, and I think again, even as Kevin said, yeah, but it just can't be two white dudes. So we need to bring two brothers into this. So again, I, I think that's what that answer is, you know, uh, uh, us dwelling together, living together, working this thing out. But yeah, man, I'm so glad y'all use your privilege because there are reporters who won't call me and Hewitt. They'll call y'all because for some reason the white guy has to be in charge and he's running it, you know. But we never said there was a leader in this thing. We all had different roles throughout this, but still people will look and just kind of make judgment calls to call the white guys and not call the black guys. That's just the way that it is. But then there have been some news folks um, and others who have been intentional to reach out to us and to ask us our perspective as well. So there, there are just so many things we do that we don't know we do. So many privileges we have that we don't even know we have. They're just natural. It's like the air we breathe. And that's part of the racialized society that we live in today. They're just some things that are just understood. You know, uh, when Hewitt and I see police officers, we, we, we see differently than uh, Eric and Kevin because of how, and Hewitt used this word earlier about being conditioned. We're all conditioned one way or another. Um, and all of it's not good. Some of it's bad. Um, even within our own community, we're conditioned against black folks who may be darker or have this kind of education or talk this a particular way. So we, we all have these things, which goes back to, uh, as the sister was saying, when we're all opened up on an operating table, that body looks the same as that body. I, I just, the insides are all the same. And so we all hurt. But that, that narrative of slavery was that we weren't human. The Imago Dei was not acknowledged in us. We were seen as beasts and animals, three-fifths of a person. And we're still fighting today to, to try to gain personhood and respect. Now, again, we've come further, you know, than past generations, but there's still a long way to go. And to my white brothers and sisters who attend church on Sunday, um, read uh, Color of Compromise. Um, what's the guy's name? Jamar Tisby. Uh, that's, a, that's a good book just to read to see how the church has been complicit in, in this um, throughout our history. So if there's one thing you can do, you know, um, educate yourself. Um, don't expect... Um, your black friends to educate you on, on why they think the way they think and why you think the way you think. Um, because, you know, part of, to me, part of white privilege is like um, the minority community has to know how the majority community acts and thinks in order to get anywhere in, in life. Um, at the majority culture, my culture, doesn't really have to know what goes on in a minority culture. In our lives, my life is fine. Uh, so don't be like that. Get to know <laughs> what other cultures are like. But um, if, you, if I would say read one book, read The Color of Compromise, um, and it will tell you how the church has been uh, complicit in, in this um, throughout our history. I actually had just one more thought. Now I'm like a fountain that just keeps running over. <laughs> so I can say this because I'm the, I'm the white guy. I think white people today, many white people today, are racked with a, a sort of um, unintentional guilt. They feel often as if they have to apologize or they must feel guilty or they're defensive about 
these things that happened in the past. Listen, if something's happened in the present, that's a whole different situation. But you don't have to be guilty about something that happened 150 years ago. But you are complicit if you continue to perpetuate those old myths, so thus you are guilty. You just have to let go of some of that. And I think the, the point here is really this. A lot of white folks, especially who are wrapped up in the Confederate mythology, don't want to think about their bloodline, even though the bloodline's so far away, great-great-grandfather that you never met, never knew, and you're nothing like him, they can't imagine that he or his wife or the whole family were who they really were. Does that make sense? Because they are not the same prejudiced, bigoted people who once owned slaves. There's still a few out there, but by and large, people have changed. Hearts have changed. And it's so hard for some people because to admit it is to admit that everything they think about themselves is wrong. But over time, it's changing. And the best changing of hearts and minds, I'm the first post-civil rights generation. My kids, my grandson, and future generations simply will not carry the baggage that a lot of other white people have. And we've made a lot of progress. You know, if we took the last 50 years and slapped that at the end of the Civil War, instead of wasting about 100 years, we'd be in such a better place. We really would be. But when Dr. King, right before he died, said he'd been to the mountaintop, now, I'm not sure exactly what he saw on the other side, but boy, if you went from 1968 to where we are today and to see a USCT statue, I think there's a real positive message. It's so easy to get hooked up in all the negativity. Stay positive. And there's a lot of white people whose hearts have finally started to change and soften. That I can tell you. That I can tell you. Thank you all. For the sake of time, we have say, room for one more question. One more question is from it? our future alderman, Elder John Haynes. This is not a question, but a statement. Um, tonight has been an experience for me that I've been waiting for uh, for a very long time. Uh, truth to power. Um, each one of you all that have spoken tonight, uh, if nothing else for me, I want to use this terminology, I've been born again. I don't, I don't know if you quite understand that. Uh, with the statue that I haven't even seen. I chose not to see it when we were outside. I was talking to the reporter, Annika, and I was telling her about there was a time in my life when I had a split personality, uh, that I hated white people, but I wanted to love them. It's because of what I've been through, what I experienced uh, throughout my early years. 
But when you started talking about the man, that statue, to me was not just a statue. It was somebody real. When you said he put, you put his feet up on that, that tree stump and when you talked about the chains being broken, you set me free. Now, that man may not have had long hair, but it set me free. I used to have a slight beard, but a couple of days ago I shaved it, but it set me free. And it lets me know that uh, as Martin Luther King talked about going to the mountain and he's seen the promised land, by this what I've experienced tonight has given me more hope that we too will see the promised land. And just to piggyback off of what he said, that's the reason why I'm running for alderman at large for Franklin, Tennessee. Thank you. Thank you, Elder Haynes. Okay, I guess we had time for one more question. <laughs> I actually don't. Are you running for alderman too? Oh no. Oh no. I I'm actually, just I actually don't have a question. I have a request. I just want to publicly thank you all. This is just the beginning of the journey. And I am so happy to see men before me. We have suffered, and we have suffered a long time. And so guide us, shepherd us, lead us. Be strong in your wit and what you do, and don't look back. To my brothers and sisters here, all of you all need to stand to your feet. And you need to celebrate these men. Thank you. Thank you everyone for coming tonight. Please come out to Town Square on Saturday at 10.30. Be there by 10 if you want to be safe um, to see the unveiling of the statue. Thank you so much for coming. Let's not forget tomorrow night at 6.30 at the Franklin Factory, we will have an elegant evening with the fuller story. 10.30, we will be in the town square. And on that afternoon at 12 noon, Johnson Elementary School, Hard Bargain Association. Ladies and gentlemen, help us welcome Ms. Brooke Wanzer as our moderator tonight. Our precious hands and gifts, Mr. Joe Howard. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Hewitt Sawyers, Dr. Chris Williamson, Dr. Kevin Riggs, and the person who left, Mr. Eric Jackson, the fuller store. Thank you. You have a safe night.
Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. The Tennessee Holler provides relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at www.tnholler.com. Let's of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.